Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, and I am here in our nation's capital in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK, and I am joined by Laura Rosenberger, who is head of the Alliance for, finish this out for me. Securing, Securing Democracy. Securing Democracy, which we're going to hear about. And as a special Thanksgiving treat, we have Corey Shockey <laughs> here in Washington, D.C., uh, after having spent yesterday in David Sanger's class in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's true. We want to hear about that. And to defend himself in Cambridge, Massachusetts, we have David Sanger of the New York Times. Did, was Corey a good student, David? Corey was an excellent student. Now, I do have to report that she had actually not done the reading before it's she came true. to class. He stumped me with the Tell me what Bush did about the Syrian reactor. Right. However, it turned out that she was really good at faking having done the reading <laughs> before she came to class, which, of course, is the sign of a true Harvard student. <laughs> well played, David. <laughs> and how did he do? You know what? He is an amazing teacher. I wish I actually could be a student in his class because I learned a bunch yesterday. I have learned so much. Wow. I have learned so much from David Sanger. He once told me how he drained his pond in ah! Vermont. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I thought you were going someplace else and I was going to yeah. cut you off. He's, <laughs> he's, he's got all sorts of interesting techniques for repelling bears. That's true. This is all true. <laughs> However, we didn't use any of those in the class. And, and Corey was the perfect visitor because we were going through the issues of when news organizations publish or don't publish full details of major national security uh, issues, a subject near and dear also to Laura's heart from her old days at the, uh, at the NSC. Yes, and, indeed. Um, wh what did I discover? I discovered that in most cases, Corey would have published. Yeah. It, I was actually surprised at how different the students' reactions were to what my Stanford students' reactions would have been. The, the students were much more establishment and in the sense that they were willing to give the government the benefit of the doubt. This happens all the time. You know, I was in this year I've been teaching at Johns Hopkins, which is new. I'm just, you know trying to mix it up, and, and it's very, very different from the classes that I've taught for the past 12, 15 years at Columbia. And we started talking about collateral damage. Would you order the strike of a, of a, of a, a drone strike if you knew that there would be a you know, certain amount of collateral damage, uh, but you'd get your terrorist suspect? They all said yes. There was no hesitation. <laughs> 
There was no discussion. I was like shocked that there was no like moral debate inside of them. So Scott Sagan, uh, a professor at Stanford and some other folks have done some really interesting research on how high the thresholds uh, Americans have for collateral damage is. Uh, in, they did a survey about Iran and would you use a nuclear weapon uh, against the Iranian government if it saved the lives of X many American servicemen? And the answers are genuinely, like, genuinely surprised me how tolerant we are of inflicting civilian casualties. This would, we should run that test that, what was it, run at like City University of New York? many years ago where the person would go into the room and turn the knob to shock the person in the other room. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and, th- and they showed a real willingness to do this. Um, all, all you have to do is imagine that it's, you know, flying a joystick and, and, and blowing up something on the other side of the world, and their willingness must go up. Deep State Radio nerds, may I please point out that David Rothkoff's eyes are lit with excitement, <laughs> and he's gesticulating, dropping those bombs, just in case you're wondering where he is this Thanksgiving season. Anti-bomb. Well, he's, he's, just, he's just, you know, envious of those of you who served in government and would, you know, sit there at the controls, right? We, I served in government. From, from the sit-room table where we used to, you know, push the buttons yeah, and move the right. levers ourselves. Yeah, right. In the Obama administration. I mean, and that's exactly yes. how it worked. Micromanagement. We were so, right. I, I want to apologize to David. He did. He served in the Commerce Department, and they would call in drones to deliver sanctions. <laughs> Almost everybody who worked for me was a drone. But, uh, <laughs> but that's another story. So... Laura, tell us about your project, because this is really what I want to use as the jumping off point for this discussion. Well, thank you. So my project, the Alliance for Securing Democracy, which I'm um, privileged to have Corey um, as part of our advisory council, um, among other um, wonderful former senior national security officials from both parties and actually um, across the across the Atlantic um, in our some of our European friends. Um, but the project is looking comprehensively at the toolkit that Russia is using to undermine democracy and democratic institutions. And I should say that Russia is using now, but other actors are looking at and in some cases already starting to adopt. Um, and we're really trying to understand the full spectrum of the toolkit that's being used. So in the U.S. right now, we have a lot of focus on social media and information operations. And sometimes we forget about oh, there were those cyber attacks that hacked the DNC and John Podesta, but those are two elements of the toolkit. But we've also seen some evidence of um, the use of financial influence, which is something we've seen across Europe. Um, There's the use of um, strategic economic coercion, which we see in the European space, um, focus on on energy in particular and other forms of support for for extremist groups. Um, And it's this whole toolkit that Russia's using um, to really undermine our democracies and our democratic institutions. Um, And it's broader than just elections. We think about it sometimes in just the election frame. Elections are just one piece of it, and it's frankly all the other monkeying around that they do in our politics and our institutions to undermine them that really enables that election interference in the first place. Well, let me me do what David Sanger did yesterday and turn to Corey Shockey and see if she's done the reading, okay? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Corey, tell me about NSC1. (laughs) No, David, I haven't done the reading, but my guess, given that the uh, number of NSC equals one, would be that it's the implementation of the National Security Act. 
Uh, well, it's not, actually. The NSC-1, the first paper produced by the NSC in an action memorandum um, after it opened its doors, was tampering with a democracy. Is that right? It was interfering in the Italian elections. Um, in I mean, The National Security Act was 1947, but I think this was around 50, I, when it, once it got opened. Um, and it was the United States deciding that they didn't want the communists to do well in the judge, the Italian elections. And the very, very first thing we did was that. And a huge portion of the focus of the NSC during its first years was psychological warfare, psychological operations, going in and playing with democracies, doing this kind of thing. And so the, the question to you is, um, Corey, uh, as we listen to what Laura is talking about, our hands are not exactly clean on this kind of thing. Are we really sort of in search for new rules for a new era? So I would answer that in two ways. Uh, the first is that I agree with you, our hands are not clean. Uh, but I also uh, think the rules of the game matter, right? And a lot of the good work that the Central Intelligence Agency has done across its existence has been keeping opposition newspapers running in authoritarian societies, keeping diversity of voices going. Um, so, so one thing is the rules of the game, and I think the Russians are demonstrably playing by different rules than the United States did, even in the Italian case. And the second thing is that um, that we are living in revolutionary times, right? So, so it matters that the Russians are not owning their influence, right? That they are trying to. Uh, hide behind false identities, trying to trick people into believing they are uh, Republican Trump supporters or Bernie Sanders supporters challenging Hillary Clinton. So, so the first point would be, uh, are you ensuring a diversity of voices or closing down voices? And I think um, America in its electoral interventions was always predominantly about ensuring diversity of voices in authoritarian societies. And second, the rules are changing because social media is changing and transparency, which is a key aspect of Western societies, ought to be established as the rules by which everybody plays in our space. This is the moment where somebody who is listening will go, somebody is drinking out of a bottle They've already turned. <laughs> David's the, drinking at at ten twenty two Pacific Standard Time. Of, any conversation of NSC one, which David drafted in nineteen forty eight, from the Commerce Department, uh, from the Commerce Department, uh, would drive anybody to drink. But um, let me read you one line from NSC one. I happen to have it here. Um, oh, and, uh, <laughs> nothing and, but net. From the journalistic corner. Nothing but Google, but go on. And and then talk about why it's a little bit bit different. So NSC1 was, as David said, an effort to bolster Italy and keep it from um, uh, going under communist um, influence. Uh, It was only partially successful in that. And then we forgot that even though they weren't going communist, they would go broke, right? And that that would be a significant problem for us. But it does have the line, 
actively combating communist propaganda in Italy by an effective U.S. information program and by all other practicable means. So um, what's the difference between information operations in the 40s when Stalin was doing this by putting you know, articles in farm newspapers around the United States and we were doing this in Italy and on our way to doing it in Latin America? And I think one of the differences, and, and uh, Laura's project has done fabulous work in sort of pointing this out, is that when you combine information operations with the power of the internet, with all the different things you can do using cyber to hide where something's coming from, or as Corey said, make it appear as if it's uh, coming uh, you know, internally within the U.S., you get something of a different nature. You get an old information operation that is supercharged, and you make it much harder than it otherwise might be to figure out who is behind it. And um, that's been the core of our current problem. It's not that anything the Russians put up on Facebook or on Twitter would by itself have been problematic if said by an American. It would have been covered by their First Amendment rights. It's that what they put up was coming from a foreign power and we thought it was coming from Americans. And that's a more complicated problem to solve. Well, the question that comes to mind, by, by the way, David, with characteristic insight, zeroed in on what is the most important line in this whole document that you know, NSC nerds like me pour over. And that is, but the most important part of the line is not the first part of the line. It's the all other practical all means. Means, which has three dots and they don't explain what that is. Right. And and that means, you know, you know, somebody might get sick, somebody might fall down the stairs. The, you know, the U.S. did not just fight for, you know, freedom of, of expression around the world. We had a pretty uh, colorful record with deposing people, supporting the uh, coups and so forth. But but here's the here's the, the question that I want to get at, Laura, as you're grappling with this. We, we can look at this, you know, through several lenses. There's the lens of 2016 election and the Russians and meddling and Trump and Clinton and so forth. That's one. We can look at it in the, law, in the sort of medium or near-term global view, which is the Russians are doing this in a variety of different places, and so will we, and so will other people. And then you can look at it in a slightly longer-term view, which is something fundamental has changed about the nature of public discourse, that borders don't matter, identities don't matter in the way that they used to, sources of information are viewed differently than they were before. And it seems really unlikely that you're going to ever be able to have a discussion in a national election again, that doesn't have strange forces from overseas, masked forces, bots, intelligent bots at some point in the future. Um, I mean, everybody here has been involved, you know, in an exchange on Twitter with, you know, a counterparty that you then later on went, well, wait a minute, maybe that wasn't even a person, you know, <laughs> or maybe that was some troll. I mean, I just, I wonder to what extent, as you look at this, you're saying, this is the beginning of a new era. This is a fundamental change in the nature of democratic discourse. Yeah, I think I would say a couple of things. So the first is um, that I actually 
to your point of, of your, your second category of like the Russians are doing this now, but others will and so will we. I actually don't think we will do this. We are not doing this kind of thing right now today. And my own argument from a policy perspective, from a national security perspective, is we shouldn't be. Um, I don't think it's what democracies do. I don't think it is in furtherance of our national security interests. And I don't think that being part of a race to the bottom of the destruction of truth is something that we should seek to be a part of whatsoever. So that's point one. Point two is, um, I think that, that we are at a point where things have changed. What I'm not entirely sure of is if we're really going fully in the direction that you just laid out or if we're about to hit a backlash point where people say, wait a minute, the internet was supposed to be this authentic space where you could have real interaction and you could have access to information in a flattening way that actually really provides people with connectivity. And we've seen over the last few years as people have begun to feel more unmoored from their communities in a globalized world, some of this backlash may be starting. But now that we're seeing that, in fact, as you just laid out, Many times people are realizing what they're encountering on the internet isn't even real or authentic in any way. I do wonder if we will get to a backlash point where people will insist on the kind of transparency that Corey was talking about, some kind of real authenticity, and what and what that will mean in practice. But how do you do that? And, and how, how do you do that? Well, I have one well, practical there's a, there's way. A, um, yeah. The... the Internet has not, internet social media companies have been exempt from regulation as political platforms in a way that TV and radio have requirements of reporting to the FEC and transparency of money being spent that we have not applied to social media platforms and they are being used as political space. So as one practical matter, this conservative thinks that we need to regulate for transparency on social media. This crazy upside down world. (laughs) (laughs) But but, but on the other hand, you know, it's a clear, you know, Facebook can say whatever they want about their role in the world. Facebook is the media now. It's not just a media company. It is the media. It is the dominant force. And it is the platform for political discourse. And they will be regulated. And that is a point. I, I have another one. But David, before I get there, you, you seem to want to say something to Corey. Yeah, so I... Uh, of course, agree completely with Corey that uh, we need to have the kind of regulation that you would have in if the same message was on TV, even if that means somebody intoning, you know, I'm David Rothkoff and I approve this message. Um, <laughs> I like the sound of that. I like the sound of where you're going. Right. With I, I, uh, it, it, this might make deep state radio nerds flee from their uh, from the podcast, but the, the visual I am getting is a woman in a 1950s science fiction movie, right? Reeling back, covering her eyes, stumbling up the beach to get away from the creature of the Black Lagoon. Okay, <laughs> let me let me just say that's a bit but, over the top. <laughs> I think that's just a, like a good start. <laughs> Excuse but, me for interrupting you, David Sanger. Please continue. No, but the uh, that image is you know I'll, I'll never get rid of it. I'll okay, well let's let's all let, let, but let the, me the, let, the let me interject. The concern I've got is actually we, there's a way we can carry the transparency argument a bit too far, and I've been having this conversation with people at Facebook and Google and all that, which is the Chinese and the Russians would like us 
to do nothing more than impose a rule that says we have to verify who every user on the Internet is. Because, of course, they want to be able to find and hunt down every Falun Gong member, every Russian dissident, and throw them in the gulag. And so one of the difficulties we're running into is that our desire for authenticity so that we know who's really saying what they're saying, which I applaud, is also going to be the authoritarian's dream. And um, I, I'd be interested to know, as, as Laura's given a lot of deep thought to this problem with her project in recent times, whether she's heard any interesting ideas about how you get around this conundrum. Yeah, it's a really important point, David. And as we all know, you know, a few years ago, we were all talking about these platforms as democratizing forces and empowering activists in, in oppressive societies. And I still believe that they are and can be. I just think we need to maximize those aspects of these platforms and minimize the aspects that are being exploited and abused against us. Um, you know, in terms of the authenticity point, I, I do think this is a very complicated piece of the puzzle. Um, human rights activists being able to be anonymous on the Internet for organizing purposes has been an incredibly powerful tool. Um, but I do think there's a way that the platforms can assure their users that they have confirmed that users are real, but not require them to be not require those users to disclose their identity publicly. So you could still have an anonymous account where the platforms, for instance, have verified the authenticity of a real person. And oh, by the way, Facebook actually says they do this. Facebook says that it's their policy that you can't have an inauthentic account. That is right. the policy of Facebook. Now, we all know that in practice, yeah, that in has practice, broken do down. That if somebody writes them a note and says, Correct. believe this is an Correct. inauthentic account. So, but that is also already Facebook's policy. Policy. Now, other platforms have different policies, but, you know, Facebook has already, in a sense, tried to grapple with this very question that you're rightly pointing out, and it's really just an enforcement question. Um, you know, and I think it's never going to be perfect, uh, but I do think that that's one way of approaching this that still allows for that kind of anonymity um, that, you're, that you're talking about. Now, the quandary will come into play when, as we know, China and Russia and others will then try to force the platforms to disclose certain information. And in fact, uh, Facebook is facing this problem right now in Russia, which is seeking to, which is threatening to ban it um, if they don't comply with certain policies about storing data about Russian users within Russia. Well, this raises a thought to me, and this may seem a little abstract, but our audience is really, really nerdy. So they, 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 may, they may enjoy this. Um, uh, and screw them if they don't. Uh, but it seems to me, as I listen to this conversation, that we're at a kind of a divide between a kind of cyber realpolitik or a real cyberpolitik and the policies and politics of ideals. And this is, you know, this is the historical divide that has existed in foreign policy debate in the United States for a long time. But as I listen to this conversation, as much as I am sort of in tune with the ideals underlying what you're saying, my thought is, not if the stakes are too high. If the stakes are too high and we can put in, you know, bots that look like people or we can tweak the system or we can play the system or we can fund somebody or we, we're going to use the system to influence outcomes and so are other countries. Now, one of the interesting things about all of this, of course, is 
a lot of the best technology and people doesn't exist with a country. It exists with non-state actors. And so you could also have non-state actors, rogues and companies and others. You know, you could have you could very easily imagine a in in the not too distant future a situation where the National Rifle Association is out there influencing a debate in the United States utilizing tools just like the ones the Russians have used. And and so the question is, are we at the beginning of a new kind of discussion, Corey? So I, my heart is a flutter that David is bringing international relations theory into this conversation. Um, and uh, I think that the only thing that realism as an IR theory or as a cyber theory gets right is that they chose the best name. Right, because anybody who's not them isn't realistic. I'm I'm cheering silently here. <laughs> There's nothing I, I I can't stand quite as much as the the realists who the self-described realists who thereby imply that everybody else is unrealistic. Exactly, um, and uh, you see, so so first of all, I think the big tech firms are unlikely uh, to, it will be so contrary to their brand and to issues important to their uh, users for them to be uh, realists, that is, people who don't care about values. Um, that I think that would be unsustainable. But they, moreover, they are themselves struggling with the challenge of uh you know, they're headquartered in the United States because they want the protections, the First Amendment protections, the intellectual property protections, the uh, ability to tell David Sanger if the government is asking them to do something, it's illegal or unconstitutional. Um, they're not headquartered in authoritarian countries. And while they think they are being virtuous by saying, we're not an American company, we're a global company, we actually need to push back on that and get them to own up to the fact that they are American companies because of freedom of the press, because of legal recourse against your government, and not let them pretend that a request from the Turkish government, uh, which makes the most uh, requests for removal of information from social media, which has the most journalists in prison, is the same thing as a request from Sweden. Right. By the way, this is all said at a moment in American history where the United States government seems to be thinking that CNN really shouldn't exist as it currently does because it annoys them and uses the specious argument that they are against the concentration of power that will come from the AT&T uh, Time Warner merger, uh, and yet at the exact same moment chooses to end net neutrality, uh, give the big guys in the internet all the advantages that they don't already have, and at the same time is pushing away FCC controls on cross-ownership in markets, which also allows the concentration of power. So right now the administration is like pro-concentration of power in the media, except 
for those cases of media organizations that don't agree with them, which strikes me, David Sanger, as ultimately anti-First Amendment. It, it could be if we if it, we do anything that leads to concentration of media, and that's what what uh, stumps me about the effort to block the AT&T Time Warner deal. If AT&T was already the owner of a significant news network or, you know, significant other content, then I might get it. But this is a classic example of a company merging with another company that's really in a different business line, uh, by and large. And that's what makes this government effort so unusual. We really haven't seen anything like it in 40 years. That doesn't mean the government will fail. But it does raise the question of whether this has more to do with the president's off-tweeted uh, comments about CNN and an effort to try to see if it could fall into different hands, perhaps more conservative controllers, uh, than it would if it stays within the Time Warner AT&T territory. Well, what's interesting about this, Laura, to me, and I'm interested in how you guys are viewing this, is – that a bunch of things that we don't normally think of as national security things are all of a sudden national security things, including, you know, the FCC and how we regulate the Internet and whether we regulate the Internet and what, uh, you know, uh, 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 you know, what um, voting machines we buy and how we how how we regulate elections in the United States and so on and so forth. And one of the problems is that a lot of the people in this space are not people that have much awareness of national security issues. They haven't been in the game. Is that a challenge that you guys are taking on? Is that a, an, an issue area that you think is important? Absolutely. I mean, so if I could just one point on the consolidation of the media issue and then and then to your very good question here about how things, as I think about it, sort of fall in the seams on these issues. Um, on the consolidation of the media piece, one of the things that worries me is that this is an issue that we've seen um, a pattern that we've also seen across parts of especially Central and Eastern Europe, um, where media has been consolidated, um, where um, there's fewer and fewer sources of independent media. And then what that means is the kinds of things that the Russians seek to do or others who are playing in that game have bigger easier targets and and the audience is less able to cross-reference or find sources of truth or verifiable information. And so it worries me that um, these two things actually go very much hand in hand in that sense in a way that we've seen go in a dangerous direction in the European space. On your question about how some of these things are sort of non-traditional national security issues and a lot of people don't have these these conversations, um, I think that's a huge part of why we sort of missed the fact that all this was happening in the U.S. in the first place. Um, because nobody was, really cha nobody was really charged with looking at some of these different pieces or looking at all of them together at the same time. Um, and we're now looking backwards and we're still putting together what happened. We're still figuring it all out. Meanwhile, it's still happening. It didn't stop on election day. I mean, my organization's tracking the um, messaging that a lot of these accounts on Twitter that are continuing to operate are pushing out every single day. Um, they last and week. What are what are you finding? Last week, for instance, they were really interested in promoting the boycott Keurig um, movement. Um, this week, um, it's all you about mean because the Russian Russian because the coffee's bad or because yeah, uh, I was going to say it's, to be it's all those Russian Nespresso users. <laughs> Pushing divisiveness. Pushing divisiveness. Any issue that they can glom onto, if it's the NFL take a knee, 
if it's, you know, boycotting Keurig because they pulled their advertising from Sean Hannity's show, if it's um, anything, frankly, that touches on racial issues like across the board, immigration related. Um, they have been playing a lot on the various allegations of sexual assault and harassment, um, in particular seeking to um, blow up as much as possible the cases of Democrats or others affiliated with the left and then um, find reasons why we should left uh, why we should allow those um, particularly those on the on the far right so like Roy Moore um, why we should let them off the hook but it's any issue that is divisive as Corey said they just want chaos they want to pit us against each other I mean this is one of the things that goes beyond just even some of the when we talk about the fake personas I mean they are seeking to inject themselves in a way into our discourse that pits us against each other and pulls us to extremes which and reduces our ability to find common cause, solve our problems, focus on the things that are important. Well, but what you're getting at here is a really, really critical point to understanding all of this. And I think there are a couple that have come up here. One is 2016 is not the story. The future is the story, right? Another is we need tools that we don't have. We need data on what this is doing. We need new communities of interests involved in, 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 in coming up with our strategies and the regulation of our strategies. We need an awareness of this as a new set of issue areas. Um, but, but another component of this, because, again, we tend to see it through the 2016 lens, is this is not politics as usual. This is not these people are for Trump and against Clinton. Therefore, division, right? Therefore, what is their objective? So I do think they were for Trump uh, in 2016, uh, in part because they rightly judged that it would make the U.S. less magnetic as a power in the world, less likely to work in effective alliances, less likely to keep... Uh, our society secure and prosperous and other societies secure and prosperous. But they are also in favor of chaos and disruption and things that pull us to the margins of what's happening and prevent us from focusing on big, important things to strengthen this country, like entitlement reform that we can all get behind. It's about diminishing our ability to do what we do well. One of the things that, I, David, you and I have talked about frequently is the overfocus. It's not that it's an overfocus on the past. What happened in the past in 2016 is clearly a giant issue. Uh, and I think it's got repercussions that are going to come for months and months and months or years. But that we've got another election coming up. We've, we, you know, this things are happening behind the behind the scenes. It's still to this day that should be worrisome. And I'm wondering, David, have you? I, I think you've been doing some reporting on this, and I'm just wondering what your take is on what the threat level is regarding 2018 and 2020. Well, I think it's fairly high. Um, it's a little bit hard to tell when you are in an off-cycle period of time from an election as we are right now. We're still, you know, 11 months out from the congressional election and uh, nearly three years out from the um, presidential election. And so at that time, that's when they're in the cycle of breeding the divisiveness that uh, Laura and Corey described. And it's only when you get in closer to an election 
that it actually becomes more useful to go for a specific candidate and, and so forth. So we'll probably see this evolve. But, you know, there has been one glimmer of hope I've seen here, and it gets to the question of recognizing this stuff. We all went into the French and German elections thinking, oh, my goodness, the Russians are going to go do there exactly what they did here. And while they tried, it didn't seem to have much effect because the French in particular were highly aware of what was coming and sort of dismissed some of this stuff. And in Germany, it wasn't as bad as I think we thought. Except we uh, haven't seen be. the end of the story in Germany, but I, I, I can come we back haven't. on that. Yeah. No, they're gonna they're gonna now likely have to have another election. And and the divisiveness, you know, German society has different, uh, you know, points of schism in it that uh, can be exploited the way uh, it can here. So it's not over. But what does this tell you? It tells you that. A good deal of voter education takes you a long way if people are prepared to get at this. And then the issue is, what do you do about those voters who you cannot persuade that they're actually being manipulated by a foreign power? And part of the difficulty here is we have a, pa a president who has said repeatedly that this whole thing is a rigged operation, that it's uh, you know completely a witch hunt, the suggestion being that a foreign power wasn't necessarily involved. This is the 400-pound hacker on the bed argument. And um, that, to me, strikes me as particularly dangerous because it wouldn't have been hard for the president, as we've said on past shows, uh, to say, um, I was legitimately elected, but we need a thorough study of this so that we never have foreign interference again. And I'm afraid that apart from operations on the outside, like Laura's, and some in Congress whose outcome we're not certain of, we don't have that sort of unified approach to learn the lessons. Yeah. If I could just jump in on a few points here. So the first is, David, I totally agree with you on the voter education. We need media literacy, you know, much greater sort of renewed civic education in general. All those things are really important. Raising awareness, inoculating populations against this kind of interference, hugely important. On the Germany piece, one point, in addition to the prospect of, you know, new elections and all that, I think it's important that we not get in the habit of judging Russian success or failure at these efforts just by swinging elections. Russia is playing the long game here. And the fact that the AFD, the far-right party in Germany, was the third largest winner in the last election, got you know into the Bundestag, um, is, is not for nothing. And there was a lot of Russian support that went into that. They knew, um, I think based on a lot of the deterrent messaging that German officials did in advance and a lot of the awareness raising that had been done with the population, that doing something big and extravagant like leaking the Bundestag material that had been hacked would have been a bridge too far. But they did a lot of low-level stuff. They're very good at judging Fake where that line is. rape stories. Mm -hmm. They're very good at judging where the line is not to cross and how they can get away with everything just underneath it. So I that's think right. that they and, did and that's a lot what of makes that. cyber such a great mm -hmm. short of war weapon. Yep. Because, you know, when, when you were in the White House, Laura, you know, when people talked about cyber attacks, they were thinking about you know, turning off the electric lights from Boston to Washington. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what we're suddenly talking about here is something far more subtle than we ever imagined, 
which is one of the reasons we didn't see it coming. Right. It's threshold warfare. Well, and, and by the way, just to bring this full circle, if you look at the earliest documents of the NSC and you go back to <laughs> NSC 68, which is, of course, one of the founding documents of modern American foreign policy. Did you uh, write that one too, David? <laughs> yeah, that was me with my pen name, Paul Nitze. Um, but, but uh, you know, the, we constantly return to the idea of all means short of war. As, you know, it, we, we, we have to be prepared for war, but almost every strategy when it's in the kind of high-stakes game is all means short of war. And cyber has opened up new vistas in terms of all means short of war. And, and we're, we've got to come to an end here. So I, I'm going to end here with, with Laura. Perhaps you've got a point, then I've got a question. So I think that that point's exactly right. And I think that we've also thought about cyber in this very classic um, sense. I mean, so much effort was done with China, in particular, to message about how economic espionage is crossing a line. And we've defined the cyberspace in a relatively narrow sense. What we've seen with what Russia and others are doing is they're applying cyber tools in ways that we wouldn't have thought about them necessarily being used against us. And so I think that that gets back to one of your earlier points, David, um, about the need to build new communities looking at these things in new ways. We, in the national security world, sometimes tend to just silo on our issues. We look at things in our very functional um, functional silos or our regional perspectives. We don't look at things in this cross-cutting way. This is an asymmetric toolkit that's being used together in a cross-cutting way, and we need to understand it as such. And that means thinking about things in new and different ways and understanding all the ways they interact. Yeah, and I want to say something here. Uh, first of all, Laura, if people want to find out more about your organization, where should they go? They should go to um, www.securingdemocracy.org. Okay, and I think it's an important place to go. I think it's an important initiative. And it says something else that I'm going to just borrow the tiara of optimism away here from Corey while she's in the studio. It says something else that we can be thankful for. Because Laura ran the foreign policy side for the Hillary Clinton campaign. And as some of you may know, Hillary Clinton didn't win. And I heard that. Yeah. Laura didn't go off into the government where she would have done these things. But in the system that we've got, there is still the opportunity to go and do those things, to frame these issues, to bring these things to the fore. And this couldn't be more important. And the current administration and Laura's group is nonpartisan. So I, I'm, this is me talking, not her talking. But, but in the current administration, they're not looking at this stuff. But somebody is. There are organizations doing it. And I think that's something great and encouraging because this is the cutting edge of where foreign policy is happening. And it's why I'm so grateful to you, Laura, for being here. I'm, great, I'm grateful to you, Corey. Um, and I'm also grateful to you, David Sanger, in beautiful Cambridge, Massachusetts, for joining us. And I hope that all of you will come back. Uh, in just a couple of days for our special Thanksgiving episode of Deep State Radio because you don't want to talk to your families. You know, you don't, you don't want to be involved in those conversations. You can put one little earpiece in your ear during Thanksgiving dinner um, and you can listen to Deep State Radio where we're going to focus on Trying to, to make you spit mashed potatoes across the table because you're laughing. Exactly. And we're going to focus on... Uh, unveiling 
the beginning of a new era in deep state radio swag, which is really something to be thankful for. So please join us again. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Cora. Corey. Thank you, David. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.